Welcome to Epignosis, the teaching ministry of Chris Morgan. May the light of God illuminate your heart and may the truth make you free as you listen. I will be speaking on an unusual topic in this episode. My write-ups are usually on unorthodox things, but it will be more so this time because I'm bringing to light a very dark place. A place that no one really likes to go, simply because talking about it is usually so uncomfortable. However, it is only uncomfortable because the errors prevalent in the reckoning of this topic are much. Yes, I want to talk about sin and law and their incestuous relationship. By the time I'm through with this discourse, my hope is that you will be released from the bondage of fear associated with this topic and gain the type of boldness that was intended by Christ when he paid that supreme price on the cross. Now, in the book of John 1.29, John the Baptist, when he saw Christ, declared, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But to this day, sin remains something that people are having to deal with constantly. Why is that happening? Now, there can be three possibilities why that is happening. The first possibility is that John was either a liar or didn't know what he was talking about. The second possibility is that Jesus was fake and actually took nothing away. And the third is that we may not fully understand what sin actually means in the first place. Well, I believe that John was a true prophet and knew what he was talking about. And that Jesus is totally genuine. Which means the problem must be with our understanding of the word sin. I don't think I'll be wrong if I say that sin is one of the most preached topics in religious gatherings over the past 2,000 years. A constant reminder of our sins seems to be the recipe to keep us in check. Well-intentioned by our fathers in the Lord, it was a means of keeping us pure and ready for the return of the Master. However, it also brings some confusion about what the mission of Christ at the cross was. If he died to take away our sins, then why does sin remain an issue after his death and resurrection? So first of all, we must ask the golden question, what exactly is sin? I know this question appears quite rhetorical at first sight because this word has been in constant use for thousands of years, even before Christ. Notwithstanding, please give me a few minutes of your time. Let me make my presentation. And I believe that at the end of it, you will see that it's not as simple as you think. Sin is defined as the transgression of the law. Please note that it's not the transgression of law, but the law. So what is the law? The law relevant to this discourse is the law of Moses, which is in the Bible. Also note that it's not referring to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are part of this law in question, but not all of it. 
The law we're talking about has over 600 items and must be wholly adhered to for any person to be seen as an adherent of it. Now, in a general sense, you could also say that sin is synonymous with the word crime. They basically mean the same thing, but are used in different contexts. For example, transgression of the law of Nigeria is a sin against Nigeria. But we rather say a crime because it's more fitting in that context. Another definition of the word sin is missing the mark. This definition is far broader than the first one because it's not tied to any law specifically. However, it speaks of the mark. This refers to a target or a requirement, which means it still has to do with a specific requirement. Generally speaking, it appears that the word sin has to do with very specific things. Therefore, sin should be defined as the contravention of an established legislation or recognizable mark or known requirement. That means that with sin, there can be no ambiguity or debate. It either is or it isn't. Whenever arguments come up about if something is a sin, it most likely is not. Sin is not determined on the basis of preferences or personal moral code. It doesn't depend on the prevailing views of right or wrong. It must be based on the contravention of an established legislation before any act can rise to such a status. Let us now look at the consequences of sin. The Bible generally states that the consequence of sin is ultimately death, which is spiritual death, as it was said to Adam in the Garden of Eden and manifested in him along with the rest of humanity. For now, let us look at the legal consequences. Every transgression of law is a sin or crime against the parties to that legislation. For example, when you break the law of Nigeria, it's a crime against Nigeria. And that crime cannot be adjudicated in the USA because they are not a party to the law. In the same way, when you broke the law of Moses in Israel, it's a sin against God and Israel and no one else. This is because the law was given by God and assented to by all of Israel, making them parties to it. Israel assented to it in Exodus 24.3 when they said they will do all that Moses says. They also made a covenant of obedience with God at Mount Sinai, which made it possible for Moses to put together the entire constitution of Israel, which is what we call the law of Moses today. It is because of this same principle that I speak of that some people are now calling the present constitution of my country, Nigeria, a fraud. This is because the 1999 constitution was prepared by a few people who were appointed and their work was assented to by an illegal government, which means the law was not assented to by Nigerians as a people, thereby making Nigerians not a party to it. 
Well, this is just by the way. Apart from the transgression of law being a sin against the assenting parties to it, it's also a sin against the particular person who has been wronged. For example, if you steal someone's property, it's a sin against the law of Nigeria in general, but it's also a crime against that person in particular whose property was stolen. So, the victim of the crime must press charges against the thief to get justice. This is important because there are sins against God and sins against men under the law. In each case, the directly wronged party takes the lead in bringing charges on the perpetrator. An example of this under the law of Moses says, If a man sleeps with someone's wife, both the man and the woman involved are stoned to death by the community in which they live, with the husband leading the stoning. The husband has to lead the execution because he is the directly wronged party and the one pressing charges. The community gets involved because they were present and there were witnesses at the wedding to validate the marriage when it was solemnized. That is why I always insist that marriage is a social contract, not a spiritual one. Now, on the other hand, in the case of illicit sex with a virgin, it's quite different. Only the father of the girl is involved and only he determines what happens after he collects his price of a virgin from the man in question. This is because under the law, he is the only wronged party not the community. Surprisingly, if the girl in question is not a virgin, then the whole thing is totally void. Absolutely nothing happens to the perpetrator because in the eyes of the law, no one has been wrong. This is why you will never see a law about fornication in the law of Moses. It's also important to understand how the consequences of sin is administered because it will give you the dynamics of the legal basis by which Christ dealt with it. Now talking about how the consequence of the original sin was administered, which is called the sin of Adam. The only wrong party in that instance was God who gave the commandment that was disobeyed. Therefore, God and God alone must determine how it will be dealt with. No one else has a say in how the matter is dealt with. It is strictly God's business, not society. This is why nobody has the right to get involved or have a say in matters of the sin of man. Remember this because it's very crucial. Let us now look into the origin of sin itself. The book of Romans 5.12 says, that through Adam sin came into the world when it said, I read, Therefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passes upon all men, for all have sinned. The question then is, how come Adam sinned in the first place when the law of Moses had not existed yet? This is as a result of the second definition of sin, which is missing the mark. A mark had been set by God in the garden, which was the prohibition of that second tree from Adam. 
that instruction automatically created sin by its mere existence which means sin is a product of the law now we can boldly say that without the law there can be no sin this is a line of thought which apostle paul of tarsus spoke in his letter to the romans in the book of romans 7 9 and it reads for i was alive without the law once but when the commandment came sin revived and i died this scripture definitely links the existence of sin to the proclamation of law the former would not exist at all without the latter had that instruction not existed there would be no sin to commit in other words Adam could have actually done exactly the same thing he did and it would not have been a sin this then means that it is not what you do that's the real issue but the fact that there's a law against it that makes it a sin it's so vital that we understand this relationship between law and sin knowing that what you do is not the problem but the law is what makes what you do a sin the law then becomes the real issue not the act therefore the most effective way to deal with sin is to remove law not to struggle with it in view of the foregoing the original sin problem between god and man had to be dealt with not by law enforcement but by the total withdrawal of the law by God. Now remember we said that God was the only wronged party, therefore God is the only one with the right to press charges. This was accomplished through the fulfillment of the objective of the law by Christ. That's what Christ said in Matthew 5.17. He said he came to fulfill the law. This is what it reads. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. The dictionary definition of fulfill is to meet the requirement or expectation. That means Christ came to meet the requirement or expectation of the law on our behalf. What then is the requirement or expectation of the law? The scriptures say that the soul that sinneth shall die. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no argument or controversy about the guilt of humanity. We are guilty and we admit it. So we must die. The issue now is what is the way out? There is no way out but death. That's why Christ came to take our place and died our death to fulfill the requirements of the law. Now having fulfilled the requirements of the law, Christ now takes the place of the law as the adjudication of righteousness. This is in Romans 10.4 and it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone that believes. Right now, instead of the law, Christ has taken charge of the adjudication of righteousness, which means it's no longer the law that decides who is righteous but Christ. 
This is because the law failed woefully in this assignment. It simply could not make anyone righteous. This is what it says in Romans 8.3 when it said, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Christ came to fulfill the law by achieving what the law had failed to do. Moreover, the consequence of the removal of law is also the eradication of sin itself. Remember, we once said that to remove the law is also to get rid of sin. So now, as far as God is concerned, there is only one thing that is considered a sin which is the rejection of the solution of our problem, Christ. God will no longer be concerned with judging men for their wrongdoings because the sin factor has been eradicated. Just like it was at the beginning in the garden, a new mark has been set by God. The mark is to believe in His Son sent to pay for the redemption of humanity. That is what now decides who is guilty as far as God is concerned. However, every action still has its consequences. So beyond eternal damnation on this earth, it is no longer God but your own action that will come after you. Now finally, as the problem of sin has been eradicated for humanity by the eternal sacrifice of Christ, the only thing men need to do is to put their faith in Christ. Christ said in John 6, 28 and 29, 28 says, Then they said to him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And verse 29 says, And Jesus answered unto them, This is the work of God that ye believe on him who he had sent. Now having entered into the kingdom of God through Christ, there is something also called the righteousness of the kingdom. There is a law instituted by Christ for those who believe in him. Just one law. This is not God's law, but Christ's law for only his followers. This law is to love your fellow Christian. It's the one and only requirement of our Lord within the kingdom. This is what he meant when he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is a yoke for Christians, but that yoke is easy. Now men will burden you with requirements that are too big for you, but not Christ. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now you may now want to ask me, if there is no longer sin because it's been taken away, what of all the bad things people are doing all over the world? Now, whatever a person does, whether it's good or bad, is totally irrelevant to God once that person has rejected Christ because the person is already condemned. Look at what Christ said in John 3.18. He that believeth in him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
men are no longer condemned for any other thing but for rejecting the Son of God. Sin has been taken away because law has been ended. What we have left as children of light are our intentions, our actions, and habits with their consequences. It's not left to us who have received Christ to manage these things for our own good. Renewing of the mind is not the responsibility of Christ, neither is it his requirement. Once we love the brethren as commanded, we are good. The rest is strictly our responsibility for our own benefit on earth, to help us prepare ourselves to be worthy vessels of good works. If we fail to purge ourselves, as Apostle Paul said, we will still be used, but for things we might not like. Had Judas purged himself of greed, he may not have been a candidate for the necessary betrayal of Christ. But since he didn't purge himself, that is what he was good for. There are people who are only good for the necessary testing of the patience of others. Whichever way, it's a win-win situation for Christ because everyone is used for necessities, either good or bad. So, my listeners, you are now free from the eternal consequence of sin if you are in Christ. The ball is now on your court to make use of this freedom properly. What will you do with this information? If this teaching causes you to go out and do all manner of evil things just because you are free, it then proves what God had known about you all along. You were never for real. If you had been staying away from doing evil acts just because you were afraid of punishment or hell, then your good deeds were never really from your heart. They were just a reaction occasioned by your fear and therefore they were null and void because God only recognizes what comes from the heart. The children of Israel pretended to be good boys and girls as long as Moses was around. But once Moses was nowhere to be found, the truth came out and the golden calf that had been in their hearts all along emerged. In the same way, now that you are totally free, the truth about you will finally emerge. But then, it is actually better for you to be yourself, good or bad, than to deceive yourself. You might as well get to know your true nature now, not who you're trying to be, so that if need be, you can address your issues on time. The children of light don't need any law. Because God said in Hebrews 10.16 that he will write his laws in their minds and heart. So freedom is not a bad thing for the children of light, but it's a release from unnecessary worries. Do good, child of God. Not because you are afraid of hell or anything, but because it's your heartfelt choice. But better still, Submit yourself to the grace of Christ, which is able not only to bring you out, but to take you into your divine destiny in Christ. Thank you so much for listening, and God bless you. We hope you were blessed by these teachings. For inquiry, support, and contributions, 
kindly send us an email on epignosis721 at gmail.com. You can also send us a message via WhatsApp on 234 We would love to hear from you. God bless you.